This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. I want to invite you, if you did not receive an email from us last week about the three services that we're starting in September, if you will scan uh, the QR code that's going to pop up here in a moment, that will take you to a a quick little two-minute survey that will help you give us some input on that. So feel free to to do that real quick, um, and and then you can complete it later this afternoon because obviously you are going to be fully engaged and locked in during this morning's message and and want it possibly be on your phone. So, uh, but that's going to help us on September 10th, we're launching a third Sunday morning service. So um, the reason for that is we are running out of space. So at Christian Chapel, there are a couple things that are, are near and dear to our heart, to who we are as a church now and who we've been historically. One of those is we're a multi-generational church where the next generation is always a big deal. And so that means we include our kids in worship services with us. And so we have our first through sixth graders in. We have our seventh through twelfth graders in with us. We are, are not looking to send them out to other parts of the building where there's mom and dad's church and then they have their own church. And so uh, what that means is we always need a little bit more space even than what we have right now. Now, even without that, you can look around this morning and see that there are not a lot of empty chairs. And we also want to make sure that there is always room for your friends, your families, your neighbors, your coworkers, your classmates, and your teammates to come to church and be able to easily find a seat. Now, I know there's a few who say, well, there's seats up front, and I would encourage you to come fill them so someone else can have yours in the back. Um, and that will, that will help us tremendously. But in the meantime, uh, what we're going to do is we have noticed when a church begins to fill about 75% full to someone who comes for the first time, it feels like it's at capacity. And so as we increase our capacity by adding a third worship service, we are also increasing our ability to provide a welcoming environment for people that God is leading to be part of Christian Chapel. So your input on those three services is going to help us as we're selecting and finalizing those times. Also be lots of new opportunities for you to serve and engage and use the gifts God has given you to help us continue to reach more people for Jesus and introduce them to a deep and meaningful experience of community here. Christian Chapel will celebrate our 50th anniversary as a church in 2024. And as we do that, it's an opportunity for us to reflect on the faithfulness of God, reflect on all the good things that he has done over all of those years. And a significant part of our story is when Richard Exley served as our pastor. Richard was the pastor of Christian Chapel from 1980 until 1992. During that time, the church saw significant growth and incredible increase in our support of missions. Many of the things that we are still reaping the benefits of and investing in today began when Richard was our pastor. And so this morning, it's my privilege to invite Richard to come and share with us. Richard is, a, if you haven't heard him before, a wonderful preacher. You're going to enjoy hearing from him tremendously. Richard, coincidentally, I knew Richard before I ever knew about Christian Chapel. When Angie and I lived in Topeka, Kansas as, as kids growing up in church, um, our church would host Richard on occasion, and he would come in and speak on Sunday mornings. And so uh, just in the way God works, one of the wonderful coincidences or sovereign moves of God uh, is that he, he led us here, and we later figured out this is where, this is where Richard serves for so many years. So will you please help me welcome Richard Exley. Thank you for coming. Good morning. As she said, I was privileged to serve Christian Chapel 
from 1980 to 1992. For 57 years, I've committed myself to full-time ministry, and the best, most meaningful, most memorable years of those 57 occurred right here when I was pastor of Christian Chapel. So I might be a little emotional just because this is such a momentous place in my spiritual journey. And many of you played a significant role in my life during the years that I was privileged to serve this church. So if I haven't ever properly thanked you, thank you. God used you in significant ways to make me whatever I am today. And I thank you for that. I have a book table out there. We're not selling any of the books. If you want to make a donation, that's fine, but it's not required. Just go by and pick up a book. I'd hate for you to leave without us being able to put something in your hand. I have two small books. So if you're not a voracious reader, just pick up one of the little books. One of them is titled Storm Shelter in the Days in Which We Live. It's critically important that we build a spiritual storm shelter before storms are upon us. And then second one is entitled Hearing God. How ordinary people like you and I can hear God's voice. Those are little books. Even a non-reader can probably read one of those. Two of my favorite books are fiction. Now I know some of you are raising your eyebrows and saying, I don't read fiction. I've heard that a lot, and this is always my follow-up question. Do you read the Bible? And they look at me like I've lost my mind. I said, most of our Lord's recorded words were fiction. You know what they're called? parables. And of course, you know what a parable is. A parable is a story about people who did not exist, doing things that did not happen, but they're filled to the brim with, with eternal truth. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not equating the novels that I've written with the parables of Jesus. That would not only be audacious, it would be blasphemous. But both of the novels I've written, The Alabaster Cross and the sweet sequel, which is called The Letter, are filled with drama, romance, adventure, but more importantly, they're filled with spiritual principles. And the reason I like fiction as a vehicle for communicating the gospel, because when a person reads fiction and the story is captivating, they let their defenses down because it's just entertainment. And so their defenses are down, and that allows the Holy Spirit to apply the spiritual principles in a more effective way. So I encourage you, the great books, I know the author. <laughs> Lord Jesus, thank you not only for the privilege of speaking here this morning, but thank you for the privilege I had of serving this congregation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for trusting a flawed man like me to guide your church. Father, I thank you for what Pastor Greg Davis 
and his team have done. I thank you for what Pastor Chris and his team are doing. I'm just amazed at how you continue to build and make Christian Chapel's ministry ever more effective. Thank you, Lord. We want a word from you this morning. That's what our hearts hunger for. We want you to speak to the deep issues of our life. And I want to acknowledge right here, Lord, that apart from the anointing of your Holy Spirit, I have absolutely nothing of eternal significance to say. Help me, I pray. Anoint me. And Father, anoint every one of us worshipers. Give us ears to hear, a heart to receive, a will to obey, and faith to act on your word. Do this now by your mighty power, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And Pastor Chris, please forgive me for not telling you earlier, thank you. I really admire what the Lord's doing through your ministry, and I feel very, very honored to share your pulpit today. Thank you, sir. Let's let him know how much we appreciate him. I'd like to invite your attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. I'm going to be reading from the New International Version. Under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Apostle Paul penned these words. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, I do not regret it. Though I have to admit I did regret it. But now I see that, because I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. For you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed by us in any way. Godly sorrow brings repentance. That leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. And I want you to pay particular attention to verse number 10. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. This morning I want to talk to you about the difference between godly sorrow, which is redemptive, and worldly sorrow, which is deadly. The difference between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the evil one. The difference between true guilt and false guilt. Let's begin like this. Take just a moment and think of the worst thing you've ever done. The one thing you hope no one ever finds out about. When you have that dark deed firmly fixed in your mind, Remember how it made you feel, how you felt, 
the shame, the remorse, the regret, the embarrassment. And the fact that you knew, you knew, no matter what you did, there was no way you could undo that tragic event. That is guilt. Those dark feelings, that sick feeling you have in the sense of your stomach, that, that self-loathing that you... That's guilt. That's what Peter felt when he denied Jesus three times and he went out into the night and wept bitterly. And he, and he was still struggling with that when he encountered Jesus on the beach some days later. That's what Judas felt. After he had struck a deal, a premeditated deal. See the difference? Peter didn't intend to deny Jesus, just like most of us don't intend to do the bad things we do. But Judas, on the other hand, was premeditated. He struck a deal, a bargain with the priest to, to betray the Lord. But after he betrayed him, then he was sick at heart. He realized, and he said himself, I have betrayed innocent blood. And he tried to undo the deal. But you can't undo what you've done. It's like trying to get spilled milk back into the bottle. It's impossible. You can't clean up the mess. Judas took the silver coins and threw them at the feet of the priest. and said, I betrayed innocent blood. I've sinned. And they said, what's that to us? Now, here's where Judas made a tragic mistake. At that moment, Judas knew it was too late for him to save Jesus. But here's a mistake. He thought it was too late for Jesus to save him. So he went out and hung himself. You see, that's the way false guilt. Or that's the way the condemnation of the enemy works. It, it tells us that God is sick of our repeated failures. It tells us that God is tired of our constant confession. That God wants to wash his hands of us. That God's ready to throw us out on the scrap heap of life. That God is done with us. You've probably heard that voice. The evil one whispering his insidious and insinuations inside your head. And really, can I stop right here and interject that the conviction of the Holy Spirit always draws you to Christ. No matter how serious your sin, the conviction of the Holy Spirit always draws you to Christ. You may deeply regret what you've done. You may be shamed by your sin. You may be embarrassed by it. But even in your brokenness, that godly sorrow, the conviction of the Holy Spirit leads to repentance. It calls you to Christ. Hear me. If what you're feeling, the shame you feel about the thing you wish you had never done, the brokenness you feel about your tragic failure, your embarrassment. How could I have done such a thing? Even when you're feeling that, if you just want to give up, that's condemnation. But if you feel drawn to Jesus, that's conviction.
So anytime you're feeling guilt, determine whether it's calling you back to Christ or it's driving you from Christ. If it calls you to Christ, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. If it drives you away, that's the condemnation of the enemy. I'm thinking of the wounded soul who wrote, and you may have felt this way. I probably have. This wounded soul said, sin has left me feeling like a stranger, unknown and unknown, unwelcome and unwanted. Alienation and estrangement are no longer just words, but a painful reality, which leaves me wasted and wrung out. I don't want to pray. I don't want to come into God's presence. I don't want to face Him. I'm ashamed. How could I have been so sinful? I'm afraid. Has He grown tired of my repeated failures, my constant confession? Still, still, I come, for I cannot bear the pain and the burden of my sin alone. In my agony, I cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You need an answer, Lord. I know my sin has driven me from you, broken our relationship, built a wall long and high. I have no excuses, no self-justifying logic. I cannot plead ignorance or extenuating circumstances. Dear God, my self-inflicted punishment is more than I can bear. My self-loathing is bitter bread that cannot ease the terrible hunger of my soul. I pound upon that wall in frantic penance until my fists are bruised and bloody, but it does not budge. I try to scale the wall that separates us, using the flimsy ladders of good works and self-righteousness. But my desperate attempts fall short. Can, can you see me, Lord? Sitting here in the ever-deepening shadow of this imposing wall, bloody-fished, Lying useless in my lap, splintered pieces of broken ladder scattered around me in mute testimony to my futile efforts to save myself. The dirty rags of my sinful failure cannot protect me from the cold night of despair. And so I weep in my fear and my guilt. No wonder, while Whitman lamented, would to God we were animals, for I have never seen them weeping in the night over their sins. Some years ago, I read about a tormented Vietnam vet who deliberately crashed his sports car into the concrete embankment at the entrance of the Eisenhower Tunnel in Colorado. The Colorado Highway Patrol estimated that he was driving in excess of 100 miles per hour when the crisis occurred. His closest friends 
described him as a tormented man, haunted by the atrocities he had witnessed and committed while fighting in Vietnam. Neither counseling nor antidepressants helped. They were simply no match for his memories or the guilt to which they gave birth. Finally, he could bear it no more. In desperation, he chose to end his life rather than to continue to live in torment. So what are we to conclude? Is guilt always a bad thing? No. It is always painful, but it need not be destructive. It can drive us to our knees in genuine repentance. It can give birth to the heartfelt confession that leads to forgiveness. 1 John 1, 8 and 9 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. True guilt is redemptive. It causes us to grieve unspeakably, but it does not abandon us to die in the dark night of our despair and hopelessness. False guilt, on the other hand, is toxic. It destroys our soul, sucks the very life out of us. And false guilt, what the Bible calls condemnation, is one of the enemy's favorite tools. He wants to remind you of your sinful failures in order to torment you, in order to drive you away from effective service, even away from saving faith in Jesus Christ. Jeff Lucas in his book, Grace Choices, here's a tragic story that illustrates the destructive power of condemnation. He tells the story of a young man named John, and he said that's not his real name. He was bright, a popular guy who seemed to enjoy his work as associate pastor. He goes on to say, I, I never knew him very well, but he seemed to be intelligent, confident, enjoying life. But his smile masked an inner darkness. Prior to entering full-time ministry, John had lived for a year or two in open rebellion towards God. He wasn't just immoral. He was perversely immoral in his passion for sexual deviancy. Then John came back to God. His repentance appeared to be total, his commitment unquestioned. But the sickening images of his past stained his soul. Try as he might, he could not forget the evil in his personal history. And he became convinced, falsely, but he became convinced that he had blasphemed the Holy Spirit. 
and that he had bypassed the possibility of forgiveness, even though his life and conduct clearly showed that the Holy Spirit was working overtime in his life and had been for some time. John said, my telephone screamed at 3 o'clock. Lucas said, my telephone screamed at 3 a.m. It was John's minister. John had disappeared, leaving a note on his door, quote, burn my clothes and consign my soul to hell. He read in his Bible that some would be saved only by fire. He put his Bible down, wrote his note. He went out into a lonely wind-set field, poured a can of gasoline over his head, and burned himself to death. Perhaps John stepped over the threshold into mental illness. Who knows what drives people when they find themselves in such deep personal despair. But whatever the final diagnosis, one thing is sure. False guilt. False guilt was his executioner. False guilt, brutal murderer. John's killer. Now hear me. John's guilt was fault because it was rooted in subjective feeling rather than objective truth. That is, it felt like the real thing, but it had no basis in reality. His sins, as evil as they were, had been forgiven. May I refer to 1 John 1, 9 again? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Please hear me. When the enemy comes against you with condemnation and false guilt, there's only one defense. The eternal word of God. What did Jesus defend himself against with when the enemy came against him in temptation? Each time he said, it is written. Logic, reason, self-righteous acts, hard work, none of those things can still the evil voice of the enemy's condemnation. Only one thing will protect you when he comes to destroy your faith, and that's the Word of God. Now let me ask you a question. Have you filled your heart with scriptures? Meditated upon, prayed over, and memorized? When the enemy comes against you, do you have an arsenal of the Word with which to defend yourself, with which to de- Feet, the enemy. Let me give you some of my favorite ones. This one comes from Psalm 103. I wish John had used this psalm to defend himself. Here's what it said. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. Wow. 
or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. That's Psalm 103, verses 10 through 12. Hear me, false guilt feels like the real thing, but it's not. The feelings are acute, they're painful, but they're not accurate. Remember, the way you distinguish between the conviction of the Holy Spirit and the condemnation of the enemy, first way, the conviction of the Holy Spirit may make you grievously sorrowful about your sinful failures, but it always draws you to Christ. The condemnation of the enemy can make you grievously sorrowful about your failures, but it drives you away from Christ, tells you that God doesn't want to have anything more to do with you. That's what our text was talking about. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow, condemnation, brings death. Genuine guilt... Conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. It makes us painfully aware of our sinful failures, but even as it does, it motivates us to confess our sins and try again. We hear ourselves praying, I know, Lord, that I failed, but by your grace, I'll do better next time. False guilt, on the other hand, tempts us to despair. It tells us that we'll never be any different that God is sick of our repeated failure and ready to wash his hands of us. It tempts us to give up. It drives us into hiding away from God. Oh, and here's another big one. The conviction of the Holy Spirit is always very specific. When he convicts us of sin, he puts his finger on it and identifies it so that we can deal with it and God can get rid of it. Condemnation, on the other hand, vague, general. It just leaves us feeling dirty, guilty, unworthy. But we don't really know why we feel that way. It's always vague like that because the enemy doesn't want us to take it to God and deal with it. Oh, and another thing, the only, time, the only time the condemnation of the enemy is specific is when he's trying to make you feel guilty and sinful and unworthy by a sinful deeds you've already confessed and have already been forgiven by God, and he's removed them as far as the east is from the west. So the enemy wants to bring that back. But hear me, hear me. On the authority of God's eternal word. I tell you that if you have confessed your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you. And I tell you, if your sins have been forgiven, God will never bring them up again. So if you're tormented by past failures, understand that's not God. That's a lie from the enemy who comes to steal kill, and destroy. I cannot tell you how many tormented people I've been able to minister through 
to through the years who were haunted, tormented by sins that Jesus has already forgiven. Hear me. If Jesus has forgiven you, how dare you not forgive yourself? If the, if the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ, if his shed blood and his glorious resurrection is enough to satisfy a righteous God, and you don't forgive yourself, it's not enough for you to forgive all you're really saying is, I'm more righteous than God is. Do you really think that? Listen, if God has forgiven you, how can you not forgive yourself? If God has removed your sin as far as the east from the west, how can you continue to think about it and torment yourself? Here's one of my favorite verses. 1 John 3.20 If our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our heart. Now that, here's what that means. The enemy is going to try to convince you that you haven't suffered enough, that you haven't repented enough, that you haven't confessed enough, that you haven't been sorry enough. And so he's always bringing that against you. He works on your heart, your emotions. But even if your heart, your emotions, your memory condemns you, God is greater than your heart. And so you have a choice. Am I going to believe my emotions or am I going to believe the eternal word of Almighty God? You are forgiven. You are redeemed. You are born again. You are righteous. You are a joint heir with Jesus Christ. You are heir of God. Even if our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. Let's return for a moment to that wounded soul who poured out his guilt in a torrent of words. Hear him as he cries. My sin has driven me from you, Lord. Broken our relationship, built a wall long and high. I have no excuses. No self-justifying logic. I cannot plead ignorance or extenuating circumstances. Dear God, my guilt is more than I can bear. My self-loathing is bitter bread that cannot ease the terrible hunger of my soul. I pound upon the wall in frantic penance until my fists are bruised and bloody. But it does not budge. I try to scale the wall using the flimsy ladders of good works and self-righteousness. But my desperate attempts to save myself fall short. Can you see me, Lord? Can you see me sitting here in the ever-deepening shadow of this imposing wall, bloody fists lying useless in my lap, splintered pieces of broken ladder scattered around me in mute testimony to my futile efforts to save myself. The dirty rags of my sinful failure cannot protect me from the cold night of despair. I weep 
in my fear and my guilt. My bruised lips give birth to broken sobs of confession. And the wall begins to tremble. A stone moves, is shaken loose, and comes tumbling down with a frightful racket, then another and another, until there is a cross-shaped opening in the wall. A light shines through, embarrasses me, and I, I, I draw the rags of my sinful past about my naked soul. And in the light, in the light, I, I see a, a nail-scarred hand reaching out to me, bidding me come. Fear and guilt mock me, and I withdraw involuntarily. The shadows close about me, and my soul shivers. The hand reaches into the darkness, and I want to grasp it. But to do so, I'll have to let go of the rags that hide my naked soul. The conflict is almost debilitating. The hand promises light and forgiveness and fellowship, but my rags are familiar. What if I drop them and reach for the ham only to have him turn away in revulsion? The darkness grows deeper, closes around me like a casket. The cold cuts through my rags and chills me with the touch of death. In desperation, I drop my filthy garment, reach for the hand, grasp it, and he draws me toward the light. Trembling, I step through the cross-shaped hole in the wall and emerge in the sunlight of his love. For just, just a moment, I'm, I'm embarrassed and try to cover my nakedness only to discover that I'm clothed in the flowing garments of his righteousness. For he who knew no sin, this is 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. Oh, here's Hebrews 10.14, which says, by one sacrifice, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, he has made perfect forever. Those he is now making holy. There's a horrible sound, like the rumbling of an earthquake. And, and, and I look behind me in time to see the wall come crashing down. I, I can hardly believe my eyes. That, that impregnable wall, which absorbed my fierce attacks without a dent, destroyed by a nail-scarred hand and a cross-shaped opening. My eyes stare in hypnotic fascination for several seconds more. Then his hand is upon my shoulder, and up ahead I hear the sound of music and dancing. Someone is shouting, the father's son is found, and he's throwing a party. I turn to my guide, my savior, and ask, am I invited? He replies, of course, the celebration is in your honor. You are his son. Thank you, Jesus. Lift your hands and thank you. Just lift your hands. Thank you, Jesus. 
What we could not do for ourselves, you did for us. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. What we could not do for ourselves, he did for us. Now, for just a moment, maybe you could best identify with that tormented soul. Because even though you've surrendered your life, you're haunted and tormented by sinful failures. God wants to deliver you from that. And there can be a powerful move of the Holy Spirit that cleanses your memory and heals your past. But in order to walk in that freedom, past the moment when deliverance comes, you must discipline yourself to meditate upon, memorize, and live in the Word so that when the enemy comes, you respond the way Jesus responded. It is written. That's your only defense against condemnation, against the evil one. But if you have the word, you can say with confidence, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Now I'm going to take just a moment and ask, don't do it yet, I'm going to ask everyone, please bow your head and close your eyes, and then I'm going to say, if you're here, and even though you've committed your life to Jesus Christ, you struggle with condemnation and false guilt, you're haunted and tormented by your past failures and you want freedom, then I'm just going to ask you to do this. Well, everybody's head is by. I'm going to ask you to just look up and make eye contact with me. When you make eye contact with me, I'm going to nod at you. And then I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to pray that the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit comes upon you, delivers you. But to stay free, you have to live in the Word. Pastor, would you come? While he's coming, every head bowed, every eye closed. Now, if you're here and you struggle with guilt and condemnation, you're tormented by past failures, Look at me, make sure I see you, and when I nod at you, then you can close your eyes again. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you. And you. And you. You. Oh, God bless you. God bless you. All over the auditorium, because this is a favorite trick, a favorite tactic of the enemy. Now, reach out and take the hand of the person next to you. And we're going to agree together in prayer right now for the power of the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Lord Jesus, you know 
You know, every man and woman who is here, who has been tormented by the enemy, who are haunted by their past failures, maybe even by their inability to live a consistent life, they're tormented. I come now in the authority of your name, in the authority of that name before which every power must bow, of things in heaven, things on the earth, and things under the earth. And in the authority of your name, I pronounce freedom from condemnation, freedom from tormenting guilt, free your sons and daughters, renew their minds, give them the joy of your salvation. Do it now, Lord. Do it now, Lord. We're agreeing together, every one of us. In Jesus' name, in Jesus' name. Let's give God praise as pastor and the praise team come. Thank you, Lord. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.